Many thanks to those that are leading in our worship, the opportunity for worship this morning. Beautiful hymns, beautiful choruses. Bye, Mr. Riley. Have a good day. <laughs> Our Lord continues to answer prayer. And we praise his name for that. He always answers prayer. Sometimes it's not to our liking, but he does indeed answer our prayers. So continue to pray for these that have been mentioned, and especially the receipt of the word. This is the most important time in our lives during the week, the receipt of the word of God. And for those of you perhaps that are listening and watching via the internet, we do welcome you with our congregation. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, if you don't have a Bible, we trust that you do, but if you don't, there are pew Bibles and this particular passage is on page 1015. So we want you to follow along because that helps you to focus on what the Spirit of God would move, how the Spirit of God would move in your life. So, tremendous passage that began all the way back in verse 11 of chapter 2. And so Peter writes this. He says, Finally, all of you be of one mind having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, a blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For, and he quotes from Psalm 34, I'm not going to read Psalm 34 this morning, but perhaps next Sunday I will read it in its entirety because it is a powerful, powerful psalm. David wrote it after he feigned being mad before Abimelech, and the Lord spared his life. And so that entire psalm is on the goodness of God. He quotes here, Peter quotes from the Septuagint, for he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Let's go to his miraculous throne of grace in prayer. Father, prepare our hearts as you have for a number of minutes now to receive the word. We pray that you'd illuminate our hearts and help us to remember that the key element here that you are teaching believers, those that are born again, is submission. And now you're teaching us, teaching us about how to submit to receive blessings in the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First slide, if you would, Brother Jeff, good to have you back this morning as all the help, and we appreciate that, okay? So, this is, Peter is actually closing out a passage, that, as I said, a lengthy passage that began back in verse 11 of chapter 2, primarily focusing 
verse 13. But things I want you to, to focus on today as we look at submitting to blessing in the church. In other words, submitting to each other in the church. And primarily, this message just wanted, is an introduction to the passage. So keep that in mind. The overall focus of text in chapter 3. Now, if you remember the first seven verses have to do with uh, believing wives, unbelieving husbands. First six verses, rather. First, verse 7 has to do with uh, an unbelieving wife and a believing husband. Uh, but the focus here is on evangelism. Or where do you get that preacher? Look at verse 15 in chapter 3. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So that's pivotal verse. So the overall focus of the text in chapter 3 is a life that is lived with the gospel in our hearts, in our souls, and in our minds. All the time. Now, because we're fallible humans, that's difficult. But that's what Peter is writing. So, let's begin this morning as he's talking about basically the good life in this passage. Uh, do you love life? Do you love it in relationship to the gospel? Is that the reason you love life? And is the gospel the weather vane of your life? You follow the direction of the Spirit of God. He is the wind, Jesus said, to Nicodemus that moves wherever he desires. Verses 8 and 9 of this passage give us a series of adjectives. And they describe our changed lives. Look at verse, verses 8 and 9. All of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. This is a charge to the church. Unbelievers can't do this. Well, they may do it temporarily. They may pull up uh, from their bootstraps and say, oh, well, I can focus my life and do that. But no, you can't do it continually. Believers have a hard time doing this continually. So these series of adjectives that Peter has used here remind us that our lives have been changed by Christ. And that we are not free. Now, we sang a lot of words this morning about freedom. The freedom we have in Christ. We actually looked at that in the second chapter. But we are not free as believers to live our lives as we choose. We're free as believers to live our lives as Christ has chosen our life for us. And that's the greatest freedom. That is a good life. Now, verses 1 through 7, we've already talked about that. Mixed marriages, believing wives, unbelieving husbands, and vice versa. 
But if you read these verses, verses 1 through 7, the word love is not, not found in that passage. That's interesting. Wives and husbands, husbands and wives, but no mention of love. However, when we move here into, the, into uh, these verses, in verse 8, he says that we're to have compassion, we're to love his brothers, be tenderhearted. And in verse 10, he says, for he who would love life and see good days. So there's something unique here that he is writing to the church. Now, churches are comprised of families. And we know that we're taught in scriptures, men are to love their wives, wives are to... Uh, follow their husbands and to love them as well. But it's not found in those seven verses. Why? Well, there's an implication here. When a man and a woman are in love, they say, when they exchange vows, I will always love you. When you commit to each other in the covenant of marriage, not a contract, in the covenant of marriage, you want to grow old together. True love wants to endure, and true love does endure. Well, I'm in love with this guy, and he's just he's so wonderful. It's true love. I'm in love with this girl. They're so beautiful, and this is true love. No, true love endures. And true love wants to grow old together. In the Song of Solomon, this is the second time in my pastorate here I've quoted from it. Last week was the first time. Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Solomon wrote, Set me as a seat upon your heart, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. Just because there's no mention of the word love in those first seven verses doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And just because there is mention of it in the verses 8 and 10 that we've read is an indication that in the church, Peter, as well as Paul, as well as Christ, reminds us that sometimes we are deficit in loving each other. Next slide. Now, love can be verbally conveyed. I love you and all the different varieties of saying that. But it's the unspoken acts of love, the acts of life, where love is found. Jesus doesn't love his church. He doesn't love Flat Creek because we're pure and spotless, because we're not. I know that because I'm its pastor. And I'm not pure and spotless. He purifies it through the word of God, to make it pure and spotless. 
Now you are clean, Jesus told his disciples in the upper room through the word that I have spoken to you. Otherwise, we're not clean. We may have deodorant on, but we're not clean. Now, Peter continues in this passage, verses 8 through 12. He begins with the phrase, finally, the word uh, finally. And he's not concluding, obviously, the epistle, but he is concluding some thoughts about submission. He's going to mention submission later on, and he's certainly going to mention suffering later on. In fact, if you would, uh, let's see where we uh, turn over to chapter 4. <clears throat> and look at verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fire trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. So yeah, he pauses for just for a short period of time and then he goes right back to reminding us that we're going to suffer. And that's part of the good life. Oh, preacher, that, that's not good. Well, Peter says that it is. It's part and parcel of a good life in Christ Jesus. The word finally, look at, uh, he uses it here. He, it comes from uh, the Greek word telos, which means, which, from which we get the word telescope. And we use telescopes to bring things that are far away and beyond the horizon close. These principles are, if you look at verse 12, notice what he says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. <coughs> In verse 12, finally emphasizes the blessing that believers share when they exemplify the attitudes of verses 8 and 9, but finally also defines the final state of the evildoer. The word face there in verse 12 means before the presence of God, and we're all in the presence of God. God's omnipresent. You can't hide from him. David said, if I make my grave in Sheol, in hell, you are there. We cannot hide from God. We are before the face of God, quorum Deo, all the time. And so, Adam and Eve hid themselves. If you go back to Genesis 3, it literally says, from the face of the Lord God. from the presence of God. So the psalmist says that the light of God's countenance is his favor. The light of his face is his favor. And in verse 12, it says the eyes and his ears. That's his favor. Another word for favor is blessing. The blessing of our Lord. The word face can also mean the anger, 
the justice and the severity of God, and that's what it means in the latter part of verse 12. But the face of the Lord, the anger, the justice, the severity of the Lord is against those who do evil. So finally defines the conclusion of the passage on submission, but it also defines the finality of the unbeliever, those that are not born again, those that, that uh, uh, ignore God completely in a number of ways. It defines the severity of God for them. Jesus himself said, we talk about to provoke God to his face. That can be a literal translation here. To provoke God to his face is to sin against him openly. Jesus closed out the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, with these words. Depart from me. I never knew you, you evildoers. He began with the blesseds. He began with the Beatitudes, and he closes out the sermon, warning of the anger, the justice, and the severity of his God, of his Father. So remember that. Let's look for a moment. Again, this is an introduction. Next slide, if you would. What is evil in the Bible? We hear the word, we, we hear it occasionally today. We um, to many in our culture today, what I would be preaching would be evil to them, it would be hatred. And that's well and good. Sticks and stones can break my bones, so to speak. But that's not in line with what the Bible is speaking of. Evil is anything that is opposite to the holiness of God. Anything. And anything that's contrary to the will of God. That's why Jesus so often spoke of following the will of his Father. His desire was to be in accord with his Father. His desire was to be of one mind. That should be the Christian's desire. To be of one mind and one accord. A couple of quotes here, several quotes, three quotes here. C.S. Lewis said this. When a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. And the closer that we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, the more attuned to sin in our life. Not in other people's lives. Sin in my life. Lucifer goes on to say, when a man is getting worse... He understands his own badness less and less. In fact, when a man or a woman is getting worse, they're pointing at other people. And they're saying, I'm not as bad as they are. Because that's the nature of sin. That's what the serpent told Adam and Eve. God's deceiving you. As God said, Augustine, 
Good can exist without evil, whereas evil cannot exist without good. We would not know what evil was, what it is, unless there's good. So this is part of the teaching and instruction of the Lord about the goodness of God. The fact that he reminds us of these things. Jerry Bridges, who went home to be with the Lord a couple of years ago, wrote, I can know if I truly fear God by determining if I have a genuine hatred of evil and an earnest desire to obey his commands. Those two things go hand in hand. How do you know you're born again? You have a hatred of sin. Doesn't mean you're not going to sin, but you hate the sin that's in your life. And that you also have a desire to be obedient. Doesn't mean you're going to be obedient all the time. But you have a desire, and that's what you want to do. That's what you want other people to do. Not being self-righteous, it's in accord with the Word. Now, Peter writes to persecuted believers, talked about this all the way back in chapter 1, about certain graces that are hard to master here without the Holy Spirit. Granted. It's because they are hard that we're called to inherit a blessing. They're hard. They're difficult. And to... To exemplify them consistently in life means that we are walking daily in the power of the Spirit of God. This is not some temporary, uh, I'm going to put my coat on this morning of being in one mind, my compassion coat, I'll wait for that tomorrow. This is hard, and it cannot be done without the power of the Spirit of God. In Genesis 18, we're not going to go there this morning, but there you have the story of the Lord appearing before Abraham and telling him at 99 years of age that he was going to father the covenant son, Isaac. And his wife, Sarah, and Sarah's mentioned here back in verse 6. His wife, Sarah, was listening as Abraham was having the conversation with the Lord. And she heard what the Lord said. Do you rem remember what Sarah did? She laughed. And the laugh there means she mocked. I'm an old woman. My husband's an old man. And the Lord asked Abraham, why is Sarah laughing? Is anything too hard for the Lord? The great news here is that it didn't, the Lord didn't say, he didn't get his feelings hurt, let's put it that way. Well, I'm not going to bless them anymore because they mocked me. No, the Lord had a purpose for blessing them. And Sarah conceived, and Isaac was born. And the Abrahamic covenant continued. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now John Piper said this. These are hard things. Okay? About this particular passage, he said this. 
Because God did the hardest thing. What's the hardest thing you've ever done? Whatever that may have been, it's not nearly as hard as what God did. He gave his son. He gave himself, the incarnate God, the God-man. Because God did the hardest thing, he most certainly will do the easier thing, which is he will give us all things, everything good for us. What a great and good God we serve. Next slide. Everything good for us. Well, preacher, you mean you get a you, you get an acknowledgement or, or you you get the information from the doctor that uh, that you have severe heart disease or you have cancer. That's good. Everything good for us. Folk will comment. We use this as an example. We've had two weddings in the past six months. We have one coming up and perhaps more. We don't know. But here's the thing. Since the Lord has uh, allowed us the grace to, to be here at Flat Creek, we've had, you know, a number of weddings. I don't know how many we've had, but a lot of them. And sometimes people will come up to me after the wedding, and they are <laughs> sometimes with alarm and sometimes with surprise that marriage is actually celebrated here. I've had several people comment it's been a long time since I've been in a, a ceremony like that. Why is that? Is marriage not a good thing? Absolutely. Because here at Flat Creek, the marriage ceremony is, is a, uh, acclaimed as worship. Because it is worship. Every time we come into the house of the Lord, whether it be Bible school, whether it be for youth, a college career, for the, for the uh, middle-aged folk, or the older folk, whatever, we're here to worship. That's why we have responsive readings. That's why we have the Old Testament quotes, the New Testament quotes, to worship. And marriage is acclaimed as worship because it celebrates God's great gifts of grace and goodness. That's important. The psalmist writes, Psalm 84, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Very similar to what we read here in the first part of uh, verse 12. No good thing. Everything good for us. Uh, 
And that's literally what Romans 8.28 means. Everything good for us. Paul would write to the church at Corinth. He says, sometimes I'm in persecution. Sometimes I'm in prison. Sometimes I'm being beaten. And I'm thinking, this is not good for me. But he said, what is before me is far more gracious and good than where I am now. Look beyond our nose. Look beyond our nose. What Peter has been doing since verse 13 of chapter 2 is to give good words of guidance. He's been teaching these aliens that are persecuted, and he's been in encouraging them for the purpose of the gospel, for a purpose of evangelism, verse 15. Verses 13 through 17, he's addressed Christians and citizens, and he explains how to relate to those that are in authority, primarily government. Verses 18 through 25, he spoke to servants and employees and employers and told them how to relate to their masters. Verses 1 through 6, we've already talked about in chapter 3. In verses uh, 7, this is about uh, mixed marriages. So he has taught both wives and husbands how to submit. And now he's going to approach the last of that element, which is the church. There are only three great institutions on earth. The first one is marriage and family. Biblical marriage and family. The second is the institution of human government, and the third is the church. Next slide. <clears throat> most marriages today, <laughs> most marriages are just thought as a good time to get with your buds, uh, get with the, uh, with, the, with the girls, and everybody come together and just drink. Stand before whoever we want to stand before. Not even mention the Lord at all, and then go out and have a party. Let's party. That's not the Christian's Marriage. Peter speaks to believers in the church about the attitudes which contribute to blessing. Uh, he says, finally, or to sum up, first thing he says is let all be harmonious. And the word there is all of you in the church, not all things, all of you in the church, from a pastor on down. Exemplify these attitudes. The issue here is not how we relate to civil authorities, although he's already taught on that. It's not how we relate to masters or employers or unbelieving husbands and wives. The issue here that he's addressing is how we relate to each other with our life together as believing Christians. 
And it's defined here. It's also defined in the two great commandments. The Shema and love your neighbor as yourself. Love, your, love the, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And teach your children how to do that. And then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. All, both of those found in the book of Deuteronomy. Paul Tripp said the two great commands, the Shema and love your neighbor as yourself, don't call you to loss. They invite you to incalculable gain. And living for something bigger than you by divine grace that you are liberated from the idol of idols, the idol of self. We've talked about that time and time again. These two, you think God knows how to teach his creation how to have a good life? I think so. You are liberated from the sad, disappointing, dissatisfying dysfunction of demanding too much too often from the people and things around you who will always fail to deliver. Every person will disappoint you. Your moms and dads, your sisters and brothers, your husbands, your wives, your employer, you could just fill in the blank. The government, it doesn't matter. They will always disappoint you. You know why? Because we know that there are things that should be right. Now, we may not do, do them, but we know that. He goes on to say, we, you're shrinking your life down to the narrow confines of your wants, your needs, your feelings, never produces a life of peace, joy, contentment, and rest that everybody craves. Can you be alone by yourself, be still, and know that I am the Lord. It's one of the great evidences of being born again. When you're still and know that he is the Lord and you bring that peace, that joy, that contentment, that rest with you into the house of God, it is contagious. Next slide. The Italians had a phrase, have a phrase called la dolce vita, the sweet life. Uh, Rob and I were in Italy a few years ago. I know that the Sanders have been in Italy. I know that uh, uh, that uh, Rebecca and Jay have been in Italy. And most of us here this morning love Italian food. I do, and you can look at me and tell I do. We love, most of us here, not everybody, but most of us here, probably love pizza. And we have favorite pizza places here in uh, Lynchburg. Or maybe it's some other town, but we go there. But I'm telling you, if you if you've had it in Italy, they don't throw everything in the kitchen sink onto a pizza. It's got a great crust. It's got a great and tomatoes, and sometimes they'll add other vegetables and so forth. But it's quite a bit different 
the food is quite a bit simpler than what we have here. La dolce vita, the sweet life. Our society is consumed with living a good life. In fact, our Declaration of Independence says we, we're gifted by our Creator with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Past week, Tony Bennett, Gordon mentioned him this morning, 96 years old, had suffered from Alzheimer's for a number of years. He, as Gordon was sharing with us, he, about the only thing he could remember toward the end of his life were the, were the lyrics to the songs that he had sung. Well, Bennett, he was the first one to sing this song, by the way, and then Sinatra followed, sang The Good Life which was a song written for the 62 French film, The Seven Capital Sins. And what this film does was basically makes light of adultery, makes light of uh, uh, gluttony, makes light of lying, makes light of all of the different, what we would consider to be the seven capital sins, murder and so forth. The song goes like this. It's the good life, full of fun, seems to be the ideal. Yes, yeah, a good life. Let you hide all the sadness that you feel. Remember what Tripp said, Paul Tripp said? Yes, yeah, a good life to be free and explore the unknown. Like the heartache when you learn you must face them all alone. Well, just wake up. And kiss that good life goodbye. For most people in America, this means desiring things or objects for self-gratification, for the idle self. It means pursuing the good life via materials, money, illicit sex, drugs, alcohol, entertainment, just whatever you want to put in there. Indulging the body beautiful, it all manifests itself as self-worship. Now sadly, what Peter is writing here is quite a bit different from the good life, from the sweet life. So let me ask you a question this morning. Do you think Jesus ever looked at someone that was living the good life at the time that he was living this, this uh, uh, metaphor for the good life that he looked at somebody and, and thought and, and uh, envied them think the Lord envied sinners do we Envy sinners. I can assure you he didn't. And I can assure you, assure you in 33 and a half, 34 short years, he lived the most complete, beautiful, good life imaginable. 
That's our Savior. That's what he wants for us. Peter had seen this life. That's what Peter writes here. He had seen the life. So, we live looking for a moment's high, a rush, a temporary fleeting indulgence of substitutes for satisfaction. And it's become so endemic in our culture that even believers fall for a number of the, uh, of the promises that are made by living this good life. Let me read something to you. This is, again, from the Wall Street Journal. This was by Gerard Baker, who was former editor-in-chief. Uh, he has, he's a citizen of two countries, uh, United Kingdom and the United States. Um, let's see, where do I want to begin here? He says, the, the, the fetishness of individual choice has created a landscape of anime and despair pockmarked by all the modern familiar social pathologies of addiction, isolation, and family collapse. We talked about loneliness a few weeks ago and family collapse, he goes on to say. He writes this, as a social objective, many believe that we need a society essentially without values. A society that pursues freedom for freedom's sake lacks the necessary moral direction to build a stable and happy country. We've elevated individual choice to the level of which we are told we can actually reject our biological sex. Talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And that this freedom is so expansive that it must now be extended to pre-adolescent uh, pre pre children. I can't say that word. So, But if you dig beneath the rhetoric surface, you see that this isn't really about extending freedom at all. The real objective here isn't to emancipate children as young as 10 from the shackles of convention but to remove parents' freedom to determine what is best for their children. This effort to undermine the institution of the family serves the larger purpose of transferring authority for children from the parents to the state. Why do they do this? Because families are obstacles to their ambitions. They're the most important building blocks of, of genuinely free society. The conception of, of the family as an obstacle to the superior will of the collective is rooted in traditional Marxist ideology, not liberalism. I have challenged you time and time again before you follow this contemporary, the contemporary Puritans, for that's what they are, read their manifestos. 
and then compare it to Scripture. And then determine whether or not they are uh, purporting to develop for you and I the good life. I dare say that they're not. Next slide. And such life falls short of verse 11, where he says we are to turn away from evil and doing good and seeking peace and pursuing it. Let him turn away from evil and do good, rather. Uh, let him seek peace and pursue it. So to be clear, in verse 13, and look at this, look at 13 and 14. What he is doing in verses 13 and 14 is he's bridging what he is finalizing in verses 8 through 12 to what he begins to explain to us in verse 15. Notice what Peter writes. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Basically, this is what the Lord desires for you in righteousness, and the Lord is not going to let harm come to you until it is in his purpose because he knows what you're pursuing is good. Regardless of what the world said. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer, and yes, you are, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. You want the blessing of life, the good life, and even if you suffer, you're blessed. Well, I don't like that preacher. Well, that's what Peter said. Now, Peter, again, I stress to you, and I've mentioned this time and time again, Peter is preparing to be crucified. His wife is with him. He will watch as his wife is crucified, put to death, and then will follow her death by his. Now, we certainly don't look at these things this way because Flat Creek is still, it is still very much possible to suffer harm for righteousness. It's increasingly so. And again, Peter exalts to save the Savior's suffering. You're not going to get away from that in 1 Peter. Now, people today have assumed that the good life now means living life without any interruptions. This is my list. These are my bullet points. If the phone rings or something happens or I need to make an appointment or whatever, I don't want my life interrupted. One reason that loneliness is epidemic is because we don't want any disruptions. We don't want something to interfere with our agendas. I define for myself what the good life is, not Scripture. May I ask you this question? Did Jesus interrupt your life? Did Jesus interrupt the state of sin on the earth when he became incarnate? Absolutely. When Jesus changed your life, when he saved you, when he brought you from death to life, did he interrupt your life? Yes, he did. And if not, you probably haven't been born again. 
It is an interruption to our life. It is meant to be an interruption. The Lord did not leave Adam and Eve alone. When he did, they sinned. He then came to counsel them and interrupted their sin. That's what the Spirit of God does. And that's a good thing. That's part of the good life. Our lives, our hearts have, been, have succumbed to the venom of the serpent. As God said, and even believers do this. We're intoxicated by the achievements in technology, especially medical expertise. We have placed our faith in man-made structures that are indeed marvelous, but they are not miraculous. Healing comes from the healer, from the great physician, who has intimate knowledge and uh, inexhaustive knowledge of our body. came together two weeks ago and prayed for Mike. The Lord has answered that prayer, but Mike still has a long way to go. Why? Because the man-made structures are marvelous, but they're not miraculous. And we are, we are very, very close to placing our faith and trust in these things when our faith and trust should be in Almighty God. Next slide. Let's bring this to a close this morning. Again, this is an introduction to this passage. Andy Crouch wrote a preface to a great book by Dr. Robert um, uh, Cudillo, who's a professor of family medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, and he also assists at the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless. The title of uh, Dr. Uh, Cudillo's book is Pursuing Health in an Anxious Age. The book's about, three, four, about four years old now. He wrote it prior to COVID. Well, Crouch wrote in the preface, he said this, for the most part, the human beings who prescribed and delivered these medical treatments have been people of intelligence, wisdom, patience, and kindness, bearers of the Imago Dei at their best. Yet so many, in so many other ways, medicine falls ever short of our expectations that it will deliver us from the basic human condition. The morbidity and the mortality that are our inheritance as fallen creatures. There's an abiding tension between medicine's achievements, which are tremendous. I'll be the first to acknowledge that. And thankfully, with Robbie, my dear wife, what they have found in her is very, very early, and the prognosis is excellent. We praise the Lord for that. Okay? Understand that. It's promises which at the limit are nothing less than you shall be like God. 
And above all, you will not surely die. Yet our Savior died. And I will readily admit, I don't want to surely die. But that is the vagary of life. It's strangely persistent failure to bring the real flourishing that we long for, either for practitioners, for the doctors, or for patients. Dr. Cudillo, in his book, just a quote from that, he says, we can only be grateful for the powerful technology that we had, yet because of the, uh, in America, uh, because America has more of it than any other country, we have access to it, uh, are challenged to restrain our tendency to use it. It'll always be difficult to use wisely as long as the world is as bad as we fear. If only we could depend on something more than the power of thinking and the tools we possess to stand between us and disaster. We're outside the garden now. We've eaten of the tree and there's no turning back. We know too much to return to its innocence and its safety. Our world, he writes, is scary and seemingly random. But the more we attempt to control our world, the more we fear what remains outside our control. A good life for believers. Everything revolves about our allegiance to the Savior. It did in ancient Rome, and it does so in contemporary America. Peter instructs to submit to blessing in the church with five attitudes. He talks about like-mindedness or harmony. He talks about sympathetic, not pathetic, attitudes toward others. He talks about brotherly love, not generic affection. He talks about compassion and empathy. And he talks about humility. Now, we'll begin to look at these next Sunday morning, but I want to remind you of this. These were not attitudes that Peter had. Until after the resurrection. He saw the resurrected Jesus. It changed him. He's gone from a boisterous, strong-willed, self-righteous man to one that has harmony, sympathy, brotherly love, compassion, and humility. That's God's desire for the good life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the Word. We thank you for the challenges of the Word. And indeed, we all want to follow life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. May we do so, Father, within the direction of your spirit.
thank you for these here this morning that know your Savior. It is our prayer that if there's any that doesn't know your Savior, may they not be fooled by the serpent's quip, as God said. May they fall at your feet before a miraculous physician and a miraculous Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> so we're going to sing a closing hymn this morning. As we sing this hymn, if the Spirit of God has spoken to you, and you're here today and you can't claim Jesus as your Savior. You, there's still a, a whisper of doubt, perhaps, in your heart and soul. Well, the good news is the Lord Jesus will hear and answer your prayer. We can't save you. We can, with an open Bible, lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's basically what Peter is writing about here. And so as we sing, if you'll make your way out of the pew, we can take you to a private prayer room with an open Bible leads you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and you can leave here this morning with that promise, with a blessing of life, with a blessing of the good life. But my life may change. <laughs> your, your life will change. Absolutely. going to change. For the better. You're here today as a child of God and, God and the Lord is leading you into the fellowship of this church. You know the Lord is uh, uh, a Savior. Perhaps you need to follow him in, believe, in uh, believer's baptism. We encourage you to do that today. Or maybe unite with us, uh, transfer of letter or statement of faith. We encourage you to do that. Believers, these are five mighty, mighty attitudes. And we all fall short. Sometimes we, we don't exercise them at all, which is sad. But when we do in our own strength, we will fall short. We must rely on the power of the Spirit of God. What number, Brother Vance? 312. 312. If the Lord's spoken, won't you?